bum bum bottom 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 bum
And when we're having a day like this, we look at each other and it's like, what do we have in our hearts to really banter about? It's the end of the year. The holidays are coming. No thanks. No thanks. <laughs> we don't even have room for a Christmas tree in this apartment. We seriously had that conversation. Which I started, and I, for which I still apologize. I like the idea about getting a garland, though. Yeah, you didn't act enthusiastic enough as soon as I suggested it. I'm telling it. you now, <laughs> I'm enthusiastic about it. The weird thing is, like, there are some Saturdays where I get up in the morning, and I leisurely listen to the news, and then I finish up my notes while you read a comic book and then we have lunch and then we sit down and we start recording and that's exactly what I want to do. Right. And then I have that day and I go like, amazing Saturday. I was productive. I had fun. Killed it. But there was just something about, you know, the old saying like, I got up on the wrong side of the bed. Yeah, like it was like know. one of those things where I just had, like I just had an emotion in me and I just started throwing rage darts at that emotion and just started hitting all kinds of stuff that was just like, I just had a feel. And you were doing, and I was doing the thing that we talk about all the time, building a narrative without actually talking that narrative out with your partner. And so like, I honestly think because of this podcast, we've been doing it for two years now. We just had our second anniversary on December 1st. High fives to each other, but also to our listeners. Yeah, Thank for you. Sure. Yeah, for sure. Thank you. Um, but, but like, because we've been doing this, I really honestly think that it gives us the tools to observe these moments from above and shape them into what we actually want them to be. So, yes, we wanted to record this podcast probably like five hours ago, mm -hmm. but we got sidetracked with this argument, this frustration. We worked that out and we're back at the table. It's so funny that that's the way that you put this, because there was a point in today where when I was wiping all of the intentions I had written on dry erase marker off of the mirror. And I was like, uh, yeah. what is the point of all of this self-help we've been doing over right. the past two years and all of these relationship conversations if we are, are just going to always be having the conversation where Lisa has to get all of her emotions out and Brad is going to brood? Like, when are we just going to either stop doing that or accept that that's a thing. You I, know what I mean? I don't know. Like, I think it's – you're always going to have an argument. A re right. Relationships are going to be peppered with arguments. It's how you deal with them and how long they infect you. And I feel like the infection process these arguments have in our life have decreased over the last two years. Yeah, I think that that's true. And then also – I think that it also gives us a vocabulary to laugh at ourselves. Yeah, yeah. So, and it gives us an excuse to talk about it here in this banter <laughs> portion. Oh my goodness! It's like everything is just becomes uh, content. Yeah, everything is content. <laughs> Always be podcasting. <laughs> but I, I also think that it, it's no coincidence that this argument happened on our last episode of Usagi Ojimbo. We just don't want to say goodbye to Miyamoto and Tomoe. Our arguments are like their duels. They always end in a draw and us laughing and having lunch. Or more likely some of those delicious cookies you made yesterday. Yeah, I did make cookies yesterday. I'm an amazing wife. Yeah, you are. Lisa, I got to ask you a question here. So like, sure. we've now covered Grass Cutter, the Mother of Mountains, and Tomoe's story. Are you heavily invested in the unrequited romance between Miyamoto Usagi and Tomoe Ame? A hundred percent. And you know that from I do. talking about Chinoyu. Mm. That issue profoundly moved me and it was 
tense and soulful and sexy, and it would have meant nothing to me if I thought that either of them had another road they could take in their lives to get that kind of romantic fulfillment they both seem to be longing for but can't have because of their commitments to their lords. Yeah, and if you go back to our first episode on Grasscutter, like I was really nervous to introduce this comic to you because I clearly adore Stan Sakai's work. And I was so thrilled to see that you engaged with it strongly, especially when we got to Mother of Mountains. And so, like, are you interested in exploring more Usagi Yojimbo comics? Absolutely. But I do like that they've been curated for me. You've only been giving me the most fun, most ex like exciting and accessible issues. And I know that a lot of Usagi Yojimbo is just that bunny rabbit wandering around yeah. doing a whole lot of nothing. And, and, and I mean, I don't know if I would say a whole <laughs> lot of nothing, but I, I think curation is important, especially when tackling uh, a work that is so epic. I mean, it's there's been decades on decades of content here. Uh, but I'm, I've got stuff loaded in the chamber for you when this episode is over. We're going to continue on with some stories. I like the idea of returning to Usagi Ojimbo from another angle of either Usagi's relationship with another woman, of which I've been told there have been those kinds of things, or his relationship with himself, or, like, I barely know anything about his relationship with Mufune, yeah. the lord that passed away, whose mon he is still wearing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, like, what a massive specter he is in Usagi's life, right? And that hasn't really been explored in the four stories that we've covered. So I feel like we could dip into this storyline from many different angles and get many... Like, to me, all, uh, all Usagi Yojimbo is about is... Tomoe Ame and right. Miyamoto Usagi being together and not being together. Yeah, we got to get you some more Jotaro comics. That's what I'm going to tell you right now. Because like the character of Jotaro clearly features heavily in this story we're about to talk about, Senso. But uh, my other question for you is, now having some strong opinions about Stan Sakai and Usagi Ojimbo, do you consider Senso a Usagi Ojimbo comic? Yes. I do consider it a Usagi Ojimbo comic. Now, do you I, consider it canon? No, I do not. And I had <laughs> read ahead, and I saw that you had this question in there. Because as I was reading the comic, I was flipping it in the air with disgust, yeah. saying this comic is not canon to me. <laughs> even though, even before I had read the end of the comic, which does essentially say that this is just a story, a legend, and not I canon. wish we could invite our listeners into our apartment while you were reading Said So because you were so disgusted with it, especially those early issues. I think Stan Sakai kind of set me up for uh. that re reaction in the introduction to this story because what he did was super cute. He did this thing where he had a caricature a cartoon of himself talking to Usagi and Usagi going like you've been doing all of this other like 47 Ronin stuff 
when are we going to get back to Usagi stories and Stan Sakai going like, I'm looking to do something a little different. Yeah, like the way Sakai writes the Usagi character in that moment is he's like taking on the voice of Usagi fandom. Like, hey, Stan, aren't you sick and tired of drawing human characters with five fingers? Referring to the 47 mm-hmm. Ronin storyline that he did with Mike Richardson. Isn't uh, it more fun and a whole lot easier to draw animal characters with four fingers? So he knows that the fandom, when they start to read Senso, are going to buck against it a little bit, like you clearly did. It's a little, it was a little defensive to him yeah. to do that. Like, I don't like when creators try to anticipate some kind of negative reaction. Yeah, I agree with you. In a lot of cases, I don't think that that results in the best art. Yeah, yeah. Um, Though I do enjoy Senso a lot. It did, like, when I got into what Senso was... I immediately was able to dismiss it in my mind of, oh, well, this is just Stan Sakai having fun. This isn't like canon. This is more like a flight of fancy. And that's why, you know, Jai comes back and is taken care of in in a panel. Like, that's not satisfying to somebody who has been on this journey. That's so invested, right? Like So Senso came out in 2014, uh, the year Usagi Ujimbo hit its 30th anniversary. And right after Stan Sakai completed 47th Ronin with... Mike Richardson. And that adaptation was incredibly important to Sakai. You know, it's something that we've talked about here on the podcast, but that story is a, like, that is mythology in Japan. Like, it is an incredibly important tale, and many, many, many artists have interpreted it in numerous mediums. Um, Sakai did not want to mess it up in any way. And as you can gather from that Stan and Usagi intro to Senso, he sensed that the fandom was getting a little antsy. Like, I, I'm sure they all appreciate it, but like, let's get back to more Usagi comics. And the Usagi comic that they come back to is such a flight of fancy. Mm. It's this massive time jump. It's 15 to 20 years in the future, depending on what edition of the hardcover you have or what Stan Sakai interview you're reading. And then we got H.G. Wells' War of the Worlds invading feudal Japan. And like we expect some fantasy here and there with Usagi Ojimba, we don't expect necessarily science fiction to happen. And so when you read this intro, the Usagi and Stan cartoon He's, like you said, being a little defensive, and he says to Usagi, don't worry, it will be terrific and exciting, some of the best art I've ever done. And I do think he's true on that last part. Like, I think it is some of Sakai's best art. I do agree with that. It's gorgeous. And the designs are so fun. Like, it's signature Sakai. How can something so gory, so weird, so scary, be so darn cute. I mean, Senso was a story that percolated inside Sakai's head for over a decade before he ever put it down to paper. He just couldn't shake this image of Usagi leading the charge of armored samurai into battle against the tripods. But to your point, Lisa, Sakai himself doesn't consider Senso canon. He will only go as far as to say that it's one of many possibilities. The comic really does operate like something akin to Marvel's Old Man Logan or Thanos The End. When you read those stories, you don't go like, well, this is the definitive climax to Wolverine's life. It's just a glimpse of what one writer thinks that life might go. And for Sakai, this is him considering 
what could Usagi's end be like? Because Sakai owns Usagi in total, uh, whenever he wants to have a little fun, he can drift into one of these fantasies. And he's talked about telling tales of Usagi's descendants, Western stories, film noir stories, pulp hero stories. Shadow of the Rabbit is a title that he has thrown around. Uh, but I got to say, like, I'm with you, Lisa. I have fun with Senso. But by its very nature and Sakai's admission, it feels like a dream or something you toss aside and then you dig back into the proper main continuity. It's like Stan Sakai is writing his own really good quality fan fiction. Mm. And like the fan fiction I love, it's also tentacle porn. <laughs> That's yeah. not true. I don't I don't watch or enjoy <laughs> tentacle porn. I haven't tried it. I might like it. I don't know. But clearly Sakai likes these Martians, these octopi. Like They're adorable. It, yeah, it's tentacle porn. I'll give you that, Lisa. And the way that I read Senso at the end of the day is it's more space Usagi than it ever was Usagi Yojimbo. Brad, I know you've just been dying to tell me about Space Usagi, so lay it on me. I really have, I really have. Uh, th this like sci-fi space opera spin on Usagi Ujimbo was born out of Sakai's desire to draw dinosaurs alongside Miyamoto Usagi. By jumping the story into the far, far future of Miyamoto's descendants, Sakai could basically draw whatever he wanted, whereas the main Usagi Yojimbo storyline is grounded at least to the history and culture of feudal Japan. Although Space Usagi is grounded in a lot of ways as well, the culture of feudal Japan continues in some form or another in this future. But it's a wild fantasy world. If you think Senso takes liberties with Usagi Yojimbo's ideas, Lisa, then you should really prepare yourself for Space Usagi. I feel like I've been doing that by watching The Mandalorian. Yeah, I mean, it is Star Wars. Space Usagi is Star Wars without any pretense of hiding the Kurosawa influences, right? The idea for Space Usagi has its origins within the 1989 Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles toy line for Playmates. The first Usagi action figure sold so well that when they went back to Sakai and asked him if he had any other ideas for a character, he just blurted out Space Usagi. The timing seemed perfect. The animated adventures of Bucky O'Hare were about to hit the small screen, and Playmates gave the green light on the figure, which finally hit toy shelves in 1991. Turns out, though, Lisa, Bucky O'Hare was not the success they were hoping for, and its failure caused the planned Space Usagi animated series to never reach beyond a three-and-a-half-minute presentation video. I've literally never heard of Bucky O'Hare. Uh, yeah, well, there you go. So if Bucky O'Hare stinks, then Space Usagi must not have worked, right? That was the logic. Sad for us. On the comic front, though, Mirage Studios was doing gangbusters. They're the home of Kevin Eastman and Peter Laird's Ninja Turtles. And they agreed to publish a Space Usagi miniseries. The first one came out in 1992, and there were two more Space Usagi miniseries that followed, with the last one being published by Dark Horse Comics after Mirage folded. In fact, when Mirage published the last issue of Usagi Yojimbo, the third Space Usagi miniseries was the first Usagi comic published by Dark Horse Comics in 1996. And all of that Space Usagi stuff, Lisa, can be found in the Dark Horse Comics Legends collections of the Usagi Yojimbo saga. Love that book. I love that book. But it is, yes, it's all slightly out of canon, flights of fantasy, all that stuff. But it's really good. And what you realize when you get to the very end of Senso is that it's not actually a story tied to Usagi Yojimbo, but to Space Usagi. It's a tale within a tale and something 
I should have been more hip to when I first read Senso in singles because the very first caption begins with a pair of quotation marks. Duh! Everything within is a fiction. This is not how Jay meets his end. This is not how Usagi meets his end. This is not how Lord Hikichi meets his end. It's a fantasy. Ah, but is it BS Lisa? Yes! No, it's not BS. Because, like, the greatest gift that Senso gives to us is its validation of the relationship between Miyamoto Usagi and Tomoe Ame. Stan Sakai is saying this romance is the one true pairing of the series by making it, quote unquote, the final Usagi Yojimbo story with their relationship at the center of it. I think that's super significant. I also think that it's really important that Sakai is basically underscoring the big stories of the entire series by wrapping them up here. Usagi and Jotaro, Lord Hikichi, Motokazu the Samurai, Jason. Because of the nature of this comic, with its endless path of the wandering samurai, Sakai may never put a bow on these stories, but he can at least imagine the bow through the lens of Senso. That's why this comic book is important. It's why it's significant. It's why we read it. I actually agree. Yeah. I was I was not agreeing for ha-has and continuing the conversation. But while I don't consider the circumstances of this story canon, I don't think this is the end for Miyamoto Usagi or Tomoe Ame. I do think that we learn something about the characters by the decisions that they make in these circumstances. Like, yeah, Usagi is being super cool about the ro the path that they cannot take as a couple at the end of Chinoyu, but how is he going to feel 15 to 20 years down the line? He is getting impatient and bitter. Yeah. Like, he's always hemming and hawing. When am I going to get around to telling Jitaro I'm his dad. Like, now we see those circumstances. He has to literally be dying to finally tell Jotaro. So the history is not canon. The characters, they're 100% truth in this world to At me. At the same time, having now read Senso and seeing that these truths between father and son and Miyamoto and Tomoe don't come out until the very end, as a reader, you go... I really hope that the main timeline addresses these issues before this moment. But do we really? Because it's these burning questions that keeps us coming back to issue after issue after issue. Like when he's like, okay, Jotaro, I'm your dad. Tomoe, uh, is it going to work out between us? Nah, I'll move on. Like, why would we keep reading Usagi Ojimbo? Because there's other stories to be told beyond those moments. I, having read Senso, yes, I do want Jitaro and Usagi to know each other as father and son before their deathbeds or before Usagi's deathbed. Dan Sakai is a master tantric storyteller. <laughs> yes. He knows what he what we want. He's not going to give it to us. But I think what we see in Senso is the logical conclusion of where these stories were going from the point in 2014. And I, I think he works out the logical direction in Senso so that he can come up with some more surprising directions mm. in the main title. You've been on this journey with 
Usagi and Tomoe way longer than Haya have. So I understand if you are like ready to yeah. climax with that. <laughs> I mean, yeah, that's true. That's true. But like while this episode is our last one with this couple, it's also our last one with our love guru. So Lisa, we got to dig into Lori Sugawa Whaley's Let the Samurai Be Your Guide for one last time. How are we using her book this week? Our love guru is Lori Sugawa Whaley and her book, Let the Samurai Be Your Guide, The Seven Bushido Pathways to Personal Success. She is a third-generation Japanese-American and a descendant of the samurai warriors on her paternal side. She is now a life coach and keynote speaker who teaches the principles of her interpretation of the Bushido Code to help people tap into what she refers to as their sole purpose, find their true leadership potential, and live powerful lives. For this last episode, I'd like to reflect primarily on chapter six, which is the chapter on honor. The idea of honor, at least in my mind, is inextricably linked to the idea of the samurai. It is something that samurai like Usagi and Tomoe hold in high regard, and when it comes to living a life of dishonor or not living at all, the expectation is that the samurai would prefer the latter. But what is honor? Lori Sugawa Whaley equates the English word honor to the Japanese word mayo or mayo. Get ready for me to mispronounce things. Why should anything change now? <laughs> the kanji for mayo is comprised of two parts. Mai meaning reputation and yo meaning admirable or praiseworthy. So the literal translation would be having a praiseworthy reputation. Sugawa Whaley has devoted a chapter to honor on equal stead with her other Bushido principles, courage, integrity, benevolence, respect, honesty, and loyalty. But the chapter reads like honor is the public face of the amalgamation of these other principles. If you are known to be a person who adheres to the principles of the Bushido code, you are a person of honor. If you are known to be a person who disregards the principles of the Bushido code, you are a person of dishonor. When comparing this chapter on honor to the chapter we covered last episode on integrity, they initially seemed very similar. They both depend on you sticking to your principles, sticking to your commitments, and sticking to the truth. To me, there seem to be two main differences. Firstly, integrity has a public face, how others perceive it, and a private face, how you perceive yourself. Someone can slander you and ruin your reputation with lies, but you can still consider yourself a person of integrity. Honor only has a public face. So if someone slanders you and ruins your reputation, you cannot consider yourself a person of honor. The second difference between integrity and honor is that integrity is only a reflection of you as an individual, where your honor extends to others you represent, such as your family, your community, your nation, or if you are a samurai, your feudal lord. When you lose your integrity, you bring shame to yourself, when you lose your honor, you bring shame to yourself and everyone you represent. This makes honor a high stakes endeavor, hence samurai choosing death over dishonor. That is not to say that honor does not exist in American culture. 
though I do think that it applies to some groups more than others. I was listening to an interview with Ijoma Aluo on the Politically Reactive podcast hosted by comedians W. Kamau Bell and Hari Kondabolu. She's the author of the book, So You Want to Talk About Race. They bonded over how as minorities and children of immigrants in the case of Ijoma and Hari, they are often looked at as representatives of their entire race, nationality, or religion. Sugawa Whaley also talks about this phenomenon, about being a Japanese-American child growing up soon after World War II. As a straight, white, gender-normative person, I just, I don't feel like I shoulder that same burden. Like, nobody's no, looking at me as a representative not. of any particular group. And sometimes I feel like I take that for granted. Yeah, I mean, I think, like, we're always trying to check our privilege. It's something you have to be proactive about. And you're going to fail at it all of the time. Sure. I do think the life of the individual in American culture is valued over the honor of the individual. We love a story about a person going against the wishes of their parents and risking it all to achieve against the odds the American dream, whatever that may be. I think that our cultural fascination with that story is one of the gross reasons we keep the American dream unattainable to so many. Pursue happiness all you want doesn't mean we're going to make it widely available. But I digress. According to Sugawa Whaley, there are distinct advantages to living in a community that considers honor a high-stakes endeavor. In her chapter on honesty, she cited a comparative study conducted in 2003 by Professor Mark West of the University of Michigan of American and Japanese Honesty. 20 wallets with the equivalent of $20 were left on the streets of New York <laughs> and the streets of Tokyo. Oh, uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. In New York, six of the wallets were returned and two of them had no cash. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's better than I thought. <laughs> in Tokyo, 17 of the wallets mm. were returned. Sure. All of them had the cash and only one person accepted the cash as a reward for turning the wallet in. That is a pretty small representative study, but personally, I would be way more worried about losing my wallet on the streets of New York than the streets of Tokyo. In 2011, five months after the earthquake and tsunami devastated Japan, officials reported more than 5,700 safes and wallets were turned in. Wow. Japan's National Police Agency reported that over $78 million of valuables, including antiques, gold, cash, and other valuables, were restored to their rightful owners after people anonymously turning them in. Amazing. When honor is high stakes, trust becomes more of the default than suspicion. According to Sugawa Whaley, even today in Japan, spoken agreements are as legally binding as written agreements. And there's not the American compulsion to get things in writing with a witness and a notary. I think that in 2020 America, we have been witnessing firsthand people gaining power through the sowing of American distrust. Just look at where we are in terms of the pandemic. People are literally dying because we are so conflicted about who and what to believe. Yep, 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 yep. For her example of honor, Sugawa Whaley points to Saigo Takamori, who is considered to be the last samurai. Side note, 
Tom Cruise is not considered <laughs> the last samurai. What? He lived during the Meiji Restoration period, Saigo Takamori, not Tom Cruise, which was a time of great turmoil in Japan as the isolated feudal society ended and made way for the modernized, industrialized, westernized nation-state of Japan. Takamori was born a samurai in 1828, having the lineage on both sides, but over the course of his career, he observed the Tokugawa shogunate gradually yield to Western pressures, ending the long period of Sakogu, isolationist foreign policy, and diminished the role of the samurai. In 1876, the government banned carrying swords for everyone except soldiers, police, and officers at state ceremonies, which was a major insult to samurai who considered their swords an extension of themselves. Yeah, their soul. And later that year, the samurai stipend was reduced by 30%. Publicly and politically, Takamori sided with the imperialists who sought to restore the emperor and preserve the elite status of the samurai, but modernization was rapidly eroding their way of life. The new central government, fearing a rebellion, sent warships to the Kagoshima prefecture, which had become the home base of Takamori and other former officers and soldiers of the Imperial Guard to remove the weapons from the government arsenal. Protesters approached Takamori to lead the rebels against the government. These rebels numbered around 40,000 troops, but the government army was 300,000 troops, not to mention they were fighting with swords and arrows, not unlike what we see in Usagi Ojimbo, while the government was using modern weapons. Despite being doomed to fail, Takamori and his rebels fought to their last man. Lori Sugawa Whaley holds this man up as a hero, but it's hard for me personally to wrap my head around that. Sure. For me, it just feels like a lot of senseless death. But does that mean collective honor is not worth fighting for if you know you're doomed to fail? I don't know. It boggles my mind. I am willing to say that this is a huge cultural blind spot for me. But that is what stories are all about. Putting ourselves in another point of view and risking boggling our minds in hopes that we get a little more open, savvy, and empathetic. I think there's a lot to talk about when it comes to honor in the pages of Senso, as well as the role that legacy and storytelling has when it comes to the preservation of principles from one generation to the next. Yeah, I think there definitely is. But before we can do that, Lisa, we got to get to words of affirmation. Affirmations! This is the portion of the show where we get to highlight you lovely listeners, those that took the time out of their day to either sign up for our Patreon community or write us a rad review. And guess what? We've got ourselves a rad review right here. A five-star review from... HTS underscore Jaws, J-O-Z. Thank you so much, HTS underscore Jaws. Lisa, do you want to read that for us? I would love to. Had a blast listening to these guys go back and forth. Their banter is great. Oh, thank you. And they have a blast doing what they do, which is conveyed through the very essence of the show. If I could give more than five stars, I absolutely would. 
That's so sweet. We would take more than five stars if we could. I mean, we you can give us more than five stars. You can sign up for our Patreon community. We have bonus content there. We just recorded a new Married to Singles episode where we dive in depth into Batman Catwoman number one from Tom King and Clay Mann and work out uh, some complicated feelings about how Tom King uh, spreads three timelines over the course of that book. Uh, ultimately, I came down with, I like that comic. Me but too. It was a process, and I didn't get to <laughs> my feelings until we had that entire conversation yesterday. You'll also have access to our back catalog of bonus episodes where we just did our holiday gift guide. I think that one was great. It's my favorite Patreon episode. So far. We love to shop. And you'll also uh, get to hear us discuss all of the Punisher movies Brad made me watch. Yeah, they, yeah, we did. Oh, I hey, and I turned you around on those. I did. I liked one of them. <laughs> uh, but we do recognize that not everyone can contribute to the Patreon, and we don't expect everyone to contribute to the Patreon. And if you just want to help us in any slight way, you can write us a review on Apple Podcasts because those reviews do help us reach a larger audience. Yeah, it helps us chart. Chart, not chart, Lisa. I've done none <laughs> of that on this episode. Does, today. Uh, we're not allowed to swear on comic book couples. Council. Sharding is not a you swear. You can't swear in a portmanteau. I, <laughs> I am offended. No, Frankly, I'm not. offended and so okay, is our okay, listeners. Okay, okay, okay. Let's get out of the words of affirmation. Thank you, HTS underscore Jaws for the lovely review, but we got to get into the comic book. I cannot believe that Shart is officially part of our words of affirmation. No Shart backsies, Lisa. Oh. <laughs> but let's, okay, okay. Usagi Ojimbo said so. We're jumping into Miyamoto and Tomoe's future. Oh, hey, hold up. Kind of like Scrooge does in A Christmas Carol. Kind of like Batman Catwoman number one, Lisa. Senso is the perfect Ghosts of Christmas future story. I'm so glad we're talking about this issue in December. Totally not planned, but it works so well. Does it? I don't know. I think it does. I think you're stretching it. I'm not stretching it. Uh, Said So is a miniseries that originally published in six issues by Dark Horse Comics from August 2014 to January of 2015. Here's the plot synopsis taken straight from the Dark Horse website. 20 years in his future, Miyamoto Usagi faces a menace from Mars. It will take all the considerable fortitude, ingenuity, and heroism that Usagi and his loved ones can muster to combat the fearsome extraterrestrial war machines and halt the alien invasion. In the end, not everyone will survive to tell the tale. Actually, no one will survive to tell the tale because it ends like technically like hundreds of years in the future, right? With Space Usagi. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, everyone we're reading in this story is probably dead. Uh, not probably dead. Definitely, definitely dead. dead. Let's get into it. All right. So first off, this book, Senso, uh, the word meaning war, by the way, thanks for the asterisk, uh, Stan Sakai. But we open on the final battle between the Gaishu clan, Lord Noriyuki's people, and Lord Hikichi, the great big bad of Usagi Ojimbo. He's like the OTV. O-O-P- OT, one true villain. Oh, okay. I was like, what are you talking about? <laughs> but he's the guy who's responsible for the death of Lord Mifune, which then sent uh, Usagi on his path down the Wanderer's Road. And as we've talked about on previous episodes, we've only seen his face once, and it was a human face. And because that tied into Nilsson Groundthumper's storyline and this whole different concept that Stan Sakai was working on, he's abandoned that since then. And so we haven't seen him since. And now we get to see him face to face here but he's wearing like a war mask. So we don't actually know what kind of animal he is or if he is still human. Uh, he's very much a shadowy figure, even while he's occupying a panel. 
We also get a couple of special guest stars in this these opening pages. Lord Horikawa, still like a right-hand yeah. lord. Like, why is he... 20 years later, we haven't gotten rid of this guy? <laughs> adult Noriyuki is still not caught on no, that he's trying to no, sabotage no. his every move. But we also have adult Jotoro. Very cool. We have Genosuke, who went from a bounty hunter to a general? Like, yep. how did that happen? Oh, well, and Usagi himself has joined the Gaishu clan. He's not wearing the Mifune crest anymore. That's a big deal. I mean, it's huge. I think it signals a major growth. And uh, I mean, that means he's settled down in the Gaishu province, something he never thought he was going to do. Perhaps largely motivated to be closer to Tomoe? Well, we're going to have to, we're going to get to more Tomoe talk here in a second. We also get the introduction of Takanoko, who, who I've never seen before. Yeah, and I, I don't. I don't think we've ever seen him before this in Usagi Yojimbo. Now his descendant does appear in Space Usagi and he's like a Q-like character who gives that Miyamoto all his gadgets. That totally makes sense because here he is presenting Lord Noriyuki with this tank in the shape of a turtle. I love it so much. But do you know who does not love it? Lord Noriyuki. Yeah, no. And I think this plays to our theme of honor because Noriyuki look at, looks at this machine and he goes, well, this in, is an abomination and it would be not honorable to use, even if it means finally defeating Lord Hikiji. Yeah, yeah. And so he, he chooses not to send that into battle. And At this point. At, well, at this point. With this foe. With this foe. Because guess what? Who drops in in the last few pages of this first issue of The Martians, the big bullet. Ooh, nice Foley work. Thank you. But I guess actually it's Bakadoom. Bakadoom. It's this massive two-page splash that Sakai illustrates. And I think this is where we go like, okay, Sakai is pulling out all the stops with his art. This is an astonishing spread. And like you see the devastation, it is quite the shock, even though you know it's coming. You know that this is a crossover with H.G. Wells' War of the Worlds. This is still like, whoa, this is a whoa moment because we've been waiting for this battle the entire time we've been reading Usagi Ojibo. What does Sakai do? He interrupts it with a Martian invasion. That's a little anticlimactic. Especially when it looks like the Gaishu clan was totally going to win. Yeah, thanks to Jotaro. Yes, Lord Noriyuki had just called in the last of his reserves led by Jotaro and Motokazu, yeah. and Usagi being like the conflicted, proud papa is like, I I can't even look, especially considering I still have not told you that I'm your dad. I, yeah, uh, yeah, maybe that's a little frustrating, but it tracks with who they are as characters. Absolutely. We do see that there is one relationship that seems to have grown for Jitaro. His rapport with Genosuke. Yes. They clearly have some kind of battle history yeah. and a mutual respect and almost like a mentorship relationship. Yeah. And Motokazu really as well. They're kind of like little samurai buddies now. And it's brothers, so great. Bros. Yeah, they're bros. Samurai bros. I'd read that comic. Uh, <laughs> but it's great to see like Motokazu going into the role that his father truly wanted for him. Like, he has ascended. And he totally looks like his dad he now. He does, yeah. It's so sweet. I love it. Getting to the second issue, it opens with this really awesome page where the Gaishu soldiers are pulling themselves 
out of the pit where the egg has dropped, the shell has dropped. And that page actually is redrawn for the hardcover edition. When it was published in singles, it didn't quite look this way, but because Sakai is such a boss Lisa, he's like, I can sell this devastation better. I'm going to redraw this entire page. The texture is beautiful. It looks like a zombie wasteland. Like that expression on the main soldier in the foreground is so broken. I love this page. And it's great, like if you go to the back of the book, you can see there are several pages throughout this story that Sakai has redrawn. And that's something that he does throughout his tenure as Usagi Yojimbo's master. And again, like that's why you love this guy, because clearly he he cares about it. He doesn't tinker George Lucas style. He doesn't keep doing it over and over again, but he gives it like a once over pass. He's obviously not like changing huge details of the storyline. Yeah, he's not taking the Yub Nub Ewok song out of the book. <laughs> he would never do that. Yeah. Keep Yub Nub, Yub Nub forever. Okay. Heavy shot first. Heavy shot first. I don't know. So like, okay. So what, what we do get in this issue is that Hikichi and Hebi and his troops, they approach the shell first. Think and- I... Their initial thought is, in my opinion, kind of smart. They go like, do you know who lives in the sky? Uh, the gods. This could be an emissary from the gods. Yeah. We want to get in there and make some alliances. Yeah, yeah. And so they approach, and this plays out very much like H.G. Wells's book, where the main characters are observing the first attack from the Martians, where the heat ray comes out and obliterates Hikichi's men. And we see tentacles reach out pick up Hikichi, and we think that Hikichi is being killed, although he's going to come back later in this series. Hebi is stuck in my craw because he is the first <laughs> character that I've seen in Usagi Yojimbo that doesn't stand up on two legs, and it's weird to me. So an anamorph snake is like a bridge too far for Lisa Gullickson? No, but we are approaching what you know for me is a bridge too far. <laughs> we'll get there, we'll get there. But the next scene is Chizu, the leader of the Nico Ninja clan, the Nico Ninja clan that used to serve Lord Hikichi, but now are hanging out with the Gaishu and are spying for the Gaishu. Chizu has gone down into the Martian pit and stumbles into some Martians uh, chillaxing, and she eradicates them with her blade. She's an awesome ninja and reports back and says, hey, guess what? They can be killed. I guess it's also worth mentioning that Chizu is another female character in Usagi Ojimbo that has had sort of these romantic dalliances with Usagi. What? Is there a single female character that he has not flirted with? Uh, yes, yes, there are. But but like Kitsuine and Chizu and Tomoe, uh, well, there's a few others. Oh, jeez. <laughs> yeah, I mean, he's on the Wanderer's Road for a long time. Well, he's settled down now, and he only has eyes for Tomoe, yeah. and those eyes are green because he's <laughs> jealous, and we're going to get into that right now. So we cut to Usagi and Tomoe, and she's kind of admonishing him and lecturing him, going like, yeah. it was irresponsible of you to just run in and save Jotaro. Uh, you know, like you— as a samurai, you need to keep a cool head. And, you know, like that tendency to pop off is something that you guys share as father and son. And he shushes her and is like, hey, you're not supposed to speak openly about that. And Tomoe is like, 
You really should tell Jataro at this point. I think this is another moment where we got to just like give a high five to Stan Sakai's abilities as an artist because that expression on Usagi's face is so severe. It is shocking like to see how angry he gets in that moment about this topic. The way that he talks to Tomoe has changed. Yeah. There's something in their relationship that is fundamentally different. Yes, there is. And has left Usagi really bitter and short-tempered with Tomoe, which makes me uncomfortable. So he goes on to explain like why he still hasn't told J- Jotaro. And he's like, well, at first, I didn't want to m- undermine his relationship with the father who raised him, Kenichi, and now it's too late. And Tomoe goes like, it's never too late. And Usagi turns on her and is like, well, it's too late for you and me. Yikes. And at that moment, someone calls out for Tomoe, and it's Kubo-sama, who is her husband. Not Lord Ito, who was the last husband. Yeah, what happened to that dog otter guy? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. But, like, we have this panel where there is, like, this tense acknowledgement between Kubo and Usagi. And so, like, her husband is fully aware that their relationship is something that's very close. Yeah, but that dude won, and he turns his back on Usagi and walks away. Now, the next morning, we learned that while our friends were sleeping, the Martians were tinkering away, and they have built two massive tripods, and they're up and at them. Seeing this, Lord Noriyuki turns to Takenoko-sensei and is like, you know what, get your <laughs> turtle weapon thing. And Tomoe is like, but you said that was dishonorable. And Lord Noriyuki is like, but look at what they've built. Yeah, you got to fight fire with fire. It reminds me of The Last Samurai and all of them going up against all of the modern weapons with their bows and arrows and swords. Yeah, so what would Lori Sugawa Whaley say about this when he he doesn't choose to just fight with swords? He he does go and get a cannon. Sugawa Whaley does harp on the point of like samurai do not compromise. They have well-defined principles and to stay on the narrow, the straight and narrow, they have to be choosing according to their principles every single time. Maybe exceptions can be made for fighting aliens from outer space, but I don't know. I think Laura Sugawa Whaley would say that this is not the honorable move, but this is Stan Sakai, a modern cartoonist, saying you got to fight fire with fire. And you got to fight enormous uh, octopus-filled tripods with dishonorable turtle tanks. And they do, and they manage to fell One alien tripod, but they also destroy the tank in the process. But we do know that Takenoko has one other machine he's been tinkering with. Oh, man, that secret weapon. I can't wait to get to that point. But a lot of people got to die first. Yeah, issue three is like the murder issue. And it's also the issue where... As I'm reading it, um, I I sort of go like, uh, you know what? I'm starting to reject the premise of this <laughs> story. I know I shouldn't. Lisa says never reject the premise, but I'm starting to do it because we see Jason and Keiko wander into the village under attack by the tripod. He sees Usagi. He gets excited. He's like, this is it. I'm finally going to get to kill Usagi. And then a heat ray obliterates Jason. Like, 
Jay should not die in this moment. Jay is another massive villain, and to be tossed away so quickly at not even the midpoint of this comic gets me so mad. What confuses me is why is he back in his old body? Because the last time we saw him, he was in a lady. Okay, so technically that's not his old body. That is another dude. It's a new body. It's a new body that looks suspiciously like his old body? Correct. <laughs> I think Stan Sakai just likes drawing those shapes. I mean, yeah, fair enough. I like seeing him in this shape, but it doesn't matter because he's dead. Lisa, when this happened, I know you're confused, like, why is he in the old shape? But, like, when this happened, you know, what was your gut reaction to it? Uh, that that it felt not like a final showdown, but like a, a cameo. And doesn't that highlight, like, okay, this is definitely not canon. This just, it can't possibly go this way in the main story. Yeah, totally. Let's go over, let's just do a bullet point of everybody who dies All right, in this so, issue. So, uh, Jason's dead. Uh, Chizu dies. Yeah, Chizu dies, goes out heroically. She plants a bomb on a tripod and explodes in the process. Genosuke dies. And again, you're like, oh my gosh, Genosuke. He he does get some really badass moments. He takes care of a bunch of these octopi creatures he, and he jumps into the pit. He goes face to face. He gets shot in the back by a heat ray and he's gone. In front of Jotaro's eyes. And I think- Jotaro has some great action moments in that pit too. He's slicing and dicing. He is literally- Killing it. <laughs> yeah, um, but I think that seeing his mentor die has him thinking about his biological father, and he gets kind of a rehearsal for watching his father die. Right, right. But like, so I I love this issue, and I love this series. It's a lot of fun. But I just, it, I mean, yeah, I'm I'm with you. I'm with Stan Sakai. This is just a fantasy. It's a what-if issue. It's a Marvel what-if issue. And this particular issue ends with another egg falling. When it does, it collapses a building atop Tomoe and Usagi. And it gives them an opportunity to, like, confront their mortality and confront their relationship. And this issue becomes the center of their romance. And in a lot of ways, it's the culmination of everything we've been talking about on this podcast for the last four episodes. When they return to consciousness and begin to dig their way out, they realize that this might actually be the end for them. And Tomoe is kind of bittersweet about it because she goes like, well, we could die together. And Usagi is like, yeah, <laughs> we could finally die in each other's arms. There's no better way to end our... Uh, unrequited samurai romance. Like, it's so, like, yeah, it's bittersweet. It's so tragic. It's so sad. But it is also, like, very loving. Like, I get, as a Western reader, I get caught up in all kinds of complicated emotions over this scene. It really underscores everything that Tomoe has given up yeah. to keep her honor and keep her loyalty to Lord Noriyuki. And so they start to have that, like, do you ever wonder what might have been conversation? And Tamale says, like, Jotaro should have yeah. been our son. Yeah. Because Brutal. she has had, not only is she not living with, not in a marriage with Usagi, but she is childless. Right. And we've never, at least from what I've read, heard her talk about a desire to be a mother, right. but that is, even for a person who's choosing to be childless, there is always that question in the back of your mind. Sure. 
of what kind of parent, what kind of child would I bear, blah, blah, blah. Some of, kind of jock. Of course, Usagi is like not listening to her pain because he is carrying his own pain because he's like, yeah, he could have been our son, but you married Buichi. Oh. <laughs> he gets all mad again, just like a dude. So like a dude. But Tomoe puts her feelings aside to take care of his fifis. And she's like, <laughs> you know, it was a political union. I don't love him. He doesn't love me. Nobody is having a great time There's in this no marriage. And Usagi brings this to the logical conclusion they've come to every single time they've broached this topic, that Tomoe has a duty to honor Lord Noyuki, she now has a duty to honor her wedding vows. And Tomoe goes like, yes, and I have honored them. So she's going like, now that we're in our dying moments, we can now honor what we want and we can honor our love by dying together. Ha ha, not so fast. Because as soon as Usagi looks like, okay, they're finally going to confess their love and perhaps bone underneath <laughs> a, bro a broken building, they feel a breeze and there's movement in the rubble. And it is one of the octopuses. It's one of the aliens and they start a fighting and they actually enter the egg. Yeah, and I love this sequence because we get to go see what's going on in these bullets, what's going on in these eggs. Uh, there's lots of these octopus creatures. That are physically inferior. They're super easy to kill, but they are in crazy numbers. There are so many of them. And they are being overwhelmed, but thankfully Motokazu and Jotaro show up. They are able to free Usagi and Tomoe and they escape. And then we get another really incredible sequence where guess what? Lord Hikichi, not dead. He's alive. We see Hebi looking skyward towards these tripods and he goes like, everything is destroyed. Surely this is the end of the world. And the tripod comes up to him, a door opens and out comes Lord Hikichi. He is alive but he is um, shadowed. We still don't get to see what his face looks like. And he is fully working with the Martians. And he's telling Hebi, look, this is what we gotta do. Um, if we wanna survive, if we wanna rule over this planet, like forget Japan, forget this little tiny little nation that we're trying to the rule here. We can, entire, we can rule this entire planet. Let's do it together. And Hebi's like, you are consorting with monsters. You're a demon. And you know what you do with demons, Lisa, when you're a snake man? You eat them. <laughs> he eats Lord Hikichi. And that's a great moment. Like, I love this moment. I was like, okay, this is actually pretty great way for this character to go out. And it shows that even villains have a code of honor. Like clearly Hebi feels that Hikiji has gone one dishonorable self-serving fact too far. And so it starts to rain and Hebe is happy about it. He's like, it's starting to rain. Good, we need the rain. And he stares up defiantly at the tripod as he is obliterated by the heat ray. And this is a character that I've never liked in this series, but suddenly I'm like, good on you, Snake. And that takes us to the fifth chapter of Senso, where uh, Tomoe's husband, Who Buichi, we've been calling Buichi and Kubo. Those are both his names. We are not sure of the order and we're not checking our notes. But he has gone in and to the forest and he has found the Komori ninja, the bat ninja. And Lisa, here we are. These are the characters that are a bridge too far for you some, for some reason. Why don't you like the bat ninja people? 
Because, okay, so we, we met one person who's slithering about. It yeah. makes me go like, well, like, where are the other slithering people? I've been only seeing, you know, die pods. Yeah. And now, like, okay, if there are bat people that are flying around, like, where are the bird people? How come there's not bug people? Like, I had already accepted, like, okay, like, all of Stan Sakai's characters are just, like, people. They just have funny heads. Now it's like, no, there is clearly, are there fish people? Like, what's happening? Well, Lisa, look, look, you can't think about it too much. First off, you've only read now four trades of Usagi Yojimbo. There are all kinds of animals you have not encountered yet. But also, like, Lisa, this like, this is not science. This is a fantasy world. Don't get hung up on it. And bat ninja are rad. They've got blades on their wings. But, like, if they're bat ninja, like, how come they have the power of flight? Yeah. How come there isn't, like, at least one bat in every city we've been to? They're all staying in the same city. Well, they're, well you don't one Again, you've only read four trades. There probably are some bats wandering around that aren't part of the ninja clan. Or they're just, like, a very tight family unit. I want... The, to see some receipts, I want to see the census no. of feudal Japan. You just need to accept the fantasy of it. What about teeny tiny bug people? There probably are teeny tiny bug people. I would people. read that comic. Yeah, it's called teeny... Pixar's A Bug's Life. <laughs> teeny tiny bug samurai. So cute. Yes, but what's really important here, Lisa, is that they make an alliance. They do attack a walker. They take down a walker, but uh, Tomoe's husband is killed in the process. And his last words are, Tomoe. Forgive me for denying you happiness. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's a very um, convenient emotional response. He is literally saying it for our benefit so that uh, we can kind of absolve Tomoe for harboring these feelings about Usagi because now... Buichi didn't, we, we have this kind of verbal confirmation that Buichi was kind of being a jerk marrying her in the first place. Yeah, and like the second he's dead, Usagi is like pouncing on Tomoe in the garden. <laughs> yeah, he does give uh, condolences and he's like, okay, now? And Tomoe's like, dude, too soon. Yeah, too soon, Usagi. And he's like, fine, but later maybe? And she's like, maybe. And the issue ends with my favorite moment of the entire comic book series. It's such a geeky, gleeful sequence where we learn that the secret project that Tekonoko has built is this massive Usagi Gundam. Usagi should be so flattered because, like, I... To put myself in Usagi's shoes, he's like, you know what? I kind of thought that everything that happened around me was actually about me, even though I've been this like wandering Ronin. And now it's confirmed because Takenoko could have made that Gundam in literally any shape. It could be a Motokazu shape. But Usagi has been with the Gaishu clan now for almost 20 years or somewhere around that time frame. And he's become a legend within the clan. It could be a Lord Noriyuki shape. He's, that not would the, make... he's not the ultimate warrior. We've now confirmed because there's a Gundam that Usagi is the ultimate warrior and he needs the mech suit. I am just saying that he should feel incredibly flattered. Well, I'm just saying, I want this mech suit. Where's my toy? I need this action figure. Mondo, get on it. Make this for me. I want it to battle my Pacific Rim stuff. <laughs> oh, and it would totally win. Though yeah. I like, you know how, how I feel about John Boyega. This thing would 
Murder John Boyega. No. Murder him. No, because it's steam-powered. With steam-powered ninja stars, murder him. Destroyed. Decimated. Boyega, you're done. You're no match for the Usagi Gundam. Sorry. End of story. Moving on to the next topic, Lisa. I mean, Usagi does die in that Gundam suit. Okay, sure. Fine. John Boyega yeah. totally okay. makes it. All right. Whatever. Whatever. But like if if, if John Boyega was in a steam-powered Pacific Rim uh, Geiger. Geiger? 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 <laughs> Jaeger? Jaegermeister? Is it a Jaeger? <laughs> I don't know. Whatever, he's dead. I like Usagi better. Okay, well, if that was what the argument was about, you yes. win. <laughs> okay, thank you. Sure, sweetheart. The the important thing is <laughs> that Takenoko has finished it just in time because yes. there's a three walker headed for Edo. The final issue is a fight issue. It's tripod versus the Usagi Gundam. It's awesome. It's a ton of fun. That's primarily what goes on. Uh, Usagi had one thing to do. A very first task was to lure the three walker away from the castle. Yeah, he does not do that. <laughs> <laughs> but the way that the fight ends is them both taking considerable damage and collapsing onto the castle. And Lisa, I know you're not like a big action person. Like when a comic sort of descends into just like action page after action page after action page, you sort of tune out. With something so crazy like this issue, with a Gundam versus a tripod, like, are you really appreciating it? Like, are, is, like is this exciting? Is this different than uh, other action sequences? I did find it confusing, and I don't understand the outcome exactly. Because they both, I guess, tie for last, but I guess... Because they both collapse and well, they yeah. both die. They tangle up in each other and they both collapse. But Usagi Gundam is on top of the tripod. So I see that as a victory for the Usagi Gundam. He is literally on higher ground and therefore he wins. Yeah. Th yes, yes. Just like, you know, Anakin Skywalker knows <laughs> the importance of higher ground. I, I guess the whole point was to, they, they began to presume that uh, this these first couple of eggs were scouts and the whole point was so that the alien scouts could not then return to their planet and bring more. So in that, our team won. Yeah, I mean, go, go humanity or animal manity. This book doesn't follow the finale of War of the Worlds where the common cold kills everything. I mean, maybe it does. We just don't see that. What's important here is that Usagi had his final moment of honor defending his people. And what is the ultimate end to an act of honor but dying, like right after, before you can, uh, you know, do anything else? Like, ooh, did something super honorable, gotta die now. So Ducharo and Tomoe run towards the rubble and they pull Usagi out and he is battered and bruised. And right in that last moment, an octopus pops out and stabs him all of the way through, shocking Tomoe, but she still has her wits about her enough to kill that last octopus. Yeah, and it's in these final moments of Usagi's where that father and son can finally confront each other as father and son and admit that they both knew already. And there is a tremendous loss there. Like, of course, they wish they could have said this before and they should have said this before. But because of their sense of honor, neither of them was going to do that. Usagi was certainly never going to do that because it came down to Jotaro being the one to call him father. Yeah. So, like, I feel like Usagi shouldn't, 
he still shouldn't get any credit for finally admitting anything to Jatara. He was, he was going to take it to the end. Like, he was never going to admit anything. But Jatara is the one who slipped up and said father. And because of that slip up, they're actually able to now see each other as father and son. And Usagi can finally hand over his swords to his descendants so that his legacy and this act of honor can be passed on through the upcoming generations. And that's what we see in the final moments when it's revealed that this entire story has been a bedtime tale told by Space Usagi to these children. Yeah, you did skip over um, another thing that Usagi never gets to do, What's which that? is to tell Tomoe yeah. those three little words. We literally get the cliche like, I, I love... And then he dies. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, it's a tragedy. It's a mm -hmm. tragedy. And... <laughs> It makes Usagi's entire journey tragic. That being said, because his story is being passed down, because his swords are being passed down, his descendants get to learn from his adventures and grow from the lessons that he learned over the course of his life and to make up for what went unsaid in his life. But that's also like a huge part of tragic hero tales or tales of honor is like the other side of the coin of living as a legend is during your mortal life, you have to live this life of self-denial. Yeah. And uh, clearly self-denial is something that is uh, romanticized and cherished within samurai fiction and in a lot of fiction. But I want to bring back a point that you made at the beginning of this episode where like, um, in this story, in this hypo hypothetical flight of fancy, Stan Sakai gets to bring these stories to their obvious conclusion. Like, obviously, uh, Tomoe and Usagi's right. love is doomed to be unrequited. So now, perhaps in another storyline, we can have a more exciting, a more surprising ending for those two. Well, I think what Senso ultimately is, is a chance for Stan Sakai to live out the final moments of Usagi in a way that he never actually will within the main title. Because Usagi Yojimbo is going to be written until Stan Sakai is no longer with us. I don't think we'll ever see Usagi off the Wanderer's Road. I don't think he will ever find uh, peace and harmony. He will be doing one adventure after another until the comic is no longer being published. I like that idea of Stan Sakai going like, okay, this is the end of Usagi as he exists now in 2015, this is the logical extension if we keep going exactly as is. Ex yeah. Here's a question for you. What happens when Stan Sakai does inevitably uh, crumble under the weight of mortality? Do you want to see him pass on his swords to the next generation? How would you feel about another writer artist picking up Usagi Yojimbo. I mean, it is interesting that Usagi Yojimbo is not Hellboy. Like, Mike Mignola has been fine with letting other artists take over the character and interpret it in different ways and play around with him. Stan Sakai has not done much of that. Like, Usagi has appeared in some Ninja Turtle comics, uh, and, I, and I really think that's it. Um, and I, and I, that's, I mean, I love that because Stan Sakai's Usagi is Usagi to me. But I imagine what's going to happen is we will see 
other artists of the day do their interpretation. And I do look forward to that. I think about like what happened to Will Eisner's The Spirit after he passed away. You get guys like Darwin Cook to come in here and do a spin. Is Darwin Cook's The Spirit The Spirit? No, but I do like seeing Darwin Cook's The Spirit. So I would like to see other people tackle Usagi, but I want Stan Sakai to tell the story that he wants to tell. I love that you have cursed Stan Sakai to never retire. He <laughs> may not stop drawing that rabbit, Ronan. I don't think I've cursed him. I just think that's what it's going to be. Like, I just don't think he's the type of guy who does retire. Now, if he wants to quit in Tarantino it and quit after a certain amount of stories, sure, fine, that's great. And if he wants to cultivate or curate the artists who would take over this character, I'm interested and curious to see that. I just don't think that's going to happen. So Stan Sakai's relationship with Usagi Ojimbo will never end. But our little series on comic book couples yeah. counseling with Usagi and Tomoe is ending with Senso. So how how do you feel about that, sweetheart? Well, I'm sad to see uh, Usagi and um, Tomoe leave this show. I think that this couple has been a lot of fun to cover. I, similar to uh, talking about Silver Surfer through the lens of Dan Slott and Michael Allred only, it's great to just drill down into one creator's point of view. And I've adored talking about these characters. And I've really liked ending this run with Senso, this imagined ending to the relationship of Tomoe and Usagi, because so often in our podcast series, we don't get that final goodbye or that final embrace. And Usagi Yojimbo in Senso does that with this uh, what if. So I feel like this episode is about as satisfying a final episode in a four episode arc that we could give. We talked about this a little bit in our Patreon Batman Catwoman episode, but with Bruce and Selina, you don't get an ending. They're going to go on for another 80 years unless you get an issue like Brave and the Bold 197 or whatever Tom King is doing in this future timeline in Batman Catwoman, right? You have to imagine the end for these characters because it's never going to come. But when you do that, you're also signifying to the reader that this is a what if. Mm. And so there's always a sense of, well, this ain't canon. I, like, it makes the story easier to dismiss, but that really doesn't matter at the end of the day. Like, did you enjoy the tale? Does this story track with what you know about these characters? And in this case, I think it does. It satisfies the conversation that we always want to have on this podcast. What is the logical extension if we took these two characters as they are in this single volume or single issue or whatever we're tackling, like... What is the logical extension of their romance? Yeah. And and we don't have to wonder yeah, with here it is. Usagi and Tomoe, here it is. That's and, right. And we were gifted that with Don and Norin in our Silver Surfer series. And I like I just have loved this last six months on Comic Book Couples Counseling. And I hope all our listeners have enjoyed it as well. But we're not quite done yet. We have to talk about what have we learned in tackling Miyamoto Usagi and Tomoe Ame through Senso. What are we pulling out of this book, applying to ourselves? For me, the logical extension from watching Tomoe and Usagi throughout all of the volumes, concluding with Senso, is you shouldn't put your happiness on the back burner. You shouldn't leave things unsaid. Tell Jotaro, hey, 
I'm your dad and I want to father sure. you. Tell Tomoy, like, sure. screw being samurai. We want to be together. We should be together. But I don't think that that's what Lori Sugawa Whaley would say. No. And I don't think that that is what Stan Sakai would say. No. I think that they would argue that Usagi and Tomoy were doing the exact right thing by honoring their principles, their personal Bushido codes, and honoring their commitment to their lords, Lord Noriyuki, or Lord, the, the memory of Lord Mufune. Right. And, and that's partly what I've already talked about, that idea of like, to be a true selfless hero, there has to be this certain amount of self-denial. Yeah, yeah. I do think that any path in life involves prioritization. Like, I'm sure everybody on, on their deathbed has certain things where they go, like, I could have gone this direction. Like, Regret. I could, yeah, like, um, it's like that old, you know, I don't even know what the origin of it is, but, like, you know, you can have a family life, you can have an artistic life, you can have a career life, pick two. Yeah. And I think that um, for Tomoe and Usagi, family life has been the thing that they've denied themselves. Yeah, and it, you, like, I agree, I had the same takeaway. Like, I'm, I'm ready to come on here and go like, don't, don't let these moments pass you by. But that's very easy to say with the life experience and the culture that we have uh, been raised in. That's different than what Usagi and Tomoe have gone through. So to put judgment on how they live their lives seems wrong, and I don't want to do that. And also, it's that self-denial, it's that honor that I love, that I romanticize, that I fetishize. Like, that's why I read Usagi Yojimbo. But if I were to take what we've learned from Usagi Yojimbo and try to, to um, shape it into something that I think would help my approach to um, sorting out like, what is the thing I should be going after? What is the thing that would be nice, but could go on the back burner? I think we could benefit as a couple by really having an open and honest conversation about what are our actual priorities. I think that we hate to admit it some of the time, but we do prioritize our own happiness over success. Sure, yeah, okay. We don't push, career-wise, we don't push each other super hard. Uh, we're both very content. We're content type of people. If anything that's gonna undermine our stardom, it's, it's what a great time we're having. Yeah, yeah, sure, sure, sure. <laughs> but that doesn't have to be a regret if we just say out loud, like, that's a conscious choice. Our number one priority is to be happy. And and our measure of our success will be our measure of happiness, not our measure of like cash monies or followers on Twitter. Yeah, fair enough. I agree with that. And that's gonna bring our conversation on Usagi Yojimbo to a close. Aw, our trip down the wanderer's road is over. Bye, Miyamoto. Bye, Tomoe. It's we been a blast. You. Yeah. So next week, it is time. It's December. It's the end of the year. 2020 is done. Thank God. <laughs> uh, but 
With the end of 2020 comes one of our favorite episodes. It's the best comic books of 2020. Should old acquaintance be for... So if you guys have any ideas for categories we should cover, or maybe you have, like, this is the definitive best volume of comics of 2020 or best issue or best whatever, be sure to tweet it at us. Though we do have... we're I mean... We're going to be doing some mad reading in the next couple we of days. We got a lot of reading to do. We got a lot of catch up. Uh, you know, Chip Zdarsky's Daredevil, I'm determined to catch up to issue 25. I know that was a big deal. A lot of people have already tweeted us that that's the best single issue of 2020. I'm still I'm still leaning towards what Jonathan Hickman's been doing over on X-Men. I know we picked House of X as the best single issue last year, issue number two. Moira, oh my God. <laughs> and I feel like X-Men number seven is the best single issue of this year, but maybe not. Maybe not. Don't tip our hand. Yeah, well, we got to do a lot of reading. We got to do a lot of reading. So that's what we're doing. Next week, we're going to unleash the best of 2020. I'm super excited about it. And then we might uh, we might return to sex criminals because guess what? That relationship has wrapped up, too, with issue number 69, dudes. 69, dudes, up top. Up top. But for the time being, it is time to return our microphone katanas to their scabbards. Okay. <laughs> and I'm going to ask you a question. Brad. Yeah. Where can our listeners send their words of affirmation to you? You can find me on all social medias at MouthDork. If you have words of affirmation for our logo, you can send them to Aaron Prescott at a cool hand fluke. And if you have some words of affirmation for our radical banner art, send them to Karen underscore X-Men fan. Lisa. Yes. Where can our listeners send their words of affirmation to you? I am always accepting words of affirmation at Sidewalk Siren on Instagram and Twitter. If you'd like to spend more quality time with us, you can subscribe to us on Podbean, Spotify, Stitcher, YouTube, and iTunes. If you'd like to get exclusive, yeah. you can join our Patreon, where you'll get more content including weekly bonus episodes. If you'd like to reach out and touch us electronically, you can email the podcast, cbccpodcast at gmail.com. You can visit the website, www.comicbookcouplescounseling.com. That's three W's before the dot, <laughs> www.comicbookcouplescounseling.com. That's how you say that, Lisa. Or you can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at CBCC Podcast. I like for when you say our website, you spell out the part that no one needs spelled <laughs> out. You can give us the gift of five stars on iTunes. And if you'd like to do an active service, why not write a review of the show while you're there? We are fluent and receptive in all five love languages. It really warms our hearts and helps the pod. So until next time, folks, keep your love tank full. And your psychic rapport open. doop doo 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 Thank you, HTS underscore Jaws, for the lovely review. But we got to get into the comic book with... I, yes. Uh, oh, I was going to interrupt you and say I can't believe that Shart is officially part of our words of affirmation. Can I interrupt you and say that? Yeah.